let's see, podcast introductions. Insert name of host. Insert name of podcast. Okay. This is Ian, and I am the Lubber's Hole. Oh, wait. Welcome to the Lubber's Hole. We are crossing the line. This is a special show celebrating us reaching the halfway point in the books and also taking a pause while my particular friend Mike recovers from what you might call a passing indisposition. So this week our special topic is humour. You're with Ian and with the recorded wit and wisdom of Mike as we dig into the topic of humour and pull out O'Brien's best and most conversation-worthy, hopefully most funny moments, or at least the ones that have stood out as we've navigated the canon so far. So we're digging back into the first 10 books to see what they held for us from a comedy point of view, from a humour point of view. We're going to hear again from one or two of our special guests. This week, we're also going to hear from our old friend Ava Sandor and maybe find out one or two new things along the way. Now, Writer and novelist Lucy Eyre, writing in the British newspaper The Guardian a few years ago, said that she came to the novels fearing that they'd be the nautical equivalent of The Lord of the Rings. But, she wrote, what really makes O'Brien nothing like Tolkien is the humour. The sailor's indulgence of Stephen's hopelessness with all things naval, Stephen's wry reactions to peculiar sea habits, the droll not-quite-insubordination of Jack's steward, Jack's mangling of languages, Stephen's persistent bewilderment at naval customs. O'Brien skewers the pompous in their own words. It's Jane Austen at sea. Well, we are right with you, Lucy. We're certainly going to use the show today to get behind some of the sly Jane Austen humour. We're going to get into the banter between the characters, between Stephen and Jack, Stephen and Jack and their female friends. We're going to talk about Jack's Aubreyisms, O'Brien's relish in skewering pomposity, as Lucy said. We're also going to get into some potty humour and possibly the peak of O'Brien's comic writing, animals and their take on humans. So... Let's get into it. Let's go right back to Master and Commander. And as we were first reading the books and really starting to explore how this literature hung together, we start out already to come upon a couple of key moments of comedy. Now, of course, humour for Patrick O'Brien is a means of expressing character. And the character that comes first to mind, I think, is Jack Aubrey and his Feast of Aubreyisms. We came across the first one of these, I think, when Mike was reflecting on the difference between reading the book and listening to audio. One of the things that came up for me is it's, it's, it's great to listen to, it's great to read, and it's wonderful to do both because I realized that I missed a number of things in Master and Commander by only listening. Uh, one of which oh, was what, what I thought was a, you know, Patrick O'Brien's take on the banking system. Um, He's in a scene. Yeah, in, in a scene there in Master and Commander, he's he's sort of taken the midshipmen to task, and he's told them, you know, when when's the last time you wrote your families? I, I need you to remind your parents that my bankers are whores. And I thought, wow, that's a that's quite the uh, thing to say, you know. And he he shouted it twice, and he's he's kind of dictating to them on the deck of the ship. But when I read the book, it was like it was H. 
O-A-R-E-S with a capital H. And I thought, what does that mean? So I looked it up and realized this is the oldest private banking establishment in England. All my bankers are whores. <laughs> no, you know, I think it's just for me another one of Patrick O'Brien's <laughs> wonderful jokes. So, so now I've got to right. do post captain both ways and see what else I missed. And if terrible dad jokes, and especially terrible dad jokes that are puns and plays on words, are going to be part of our theme of humor today, then we've got to notice the moment when Stephen Maturin got in on Jack Aubrey's act. We're about, we're, we're about to have sprung on us. One of the jokes, with apologies to those of you who are saving this for reading ahead, this is a spoiler. This joke is going to come back at least once per book. Right. And O'Brien's obviously so delighted with it, and he makes Jack so delighted with this joke. Why is a dog watch called a dog watch? By the way, the dog watch being the watch between 4 and 6 p.m. and 6 and 8 p.m., dog watches being two hours long instead of four hours long, as are all the other watches in a, uh, in a naval watch system. Why are the dog watches called dog watches? Because they're curtailed. And it's not one that makes you chortle right off the page, but what makes you what you chortle is the the unfolding glee of the members of the gunroom, the members of the wardroom, the dinner party, as they all start to get it. And everybody is just falling about with this really quite lame joke. And and who delivers that line? Matron. And, and of course, everybody ignores Matron because Matron doesn't know anything about the Navy and naval right. life. But that, you know, Matron makes this, nobody does anything. And then finally, one of the midshipmen starts to chortle and says, you know, kind of tells his neighbor about it, who then catches up. And then everybody's not all eyes on Stephen about, a, you know, a naval watch, which Stephen probably knows nothing about, but he knows a great pun. <laughs> So besides puns, one of the other rich veins of humour that we found, especially back in those early books, is O'Brien's love for satirising accents and playing with the way people speak and how it gives comedy to their situations and their character. Beginning with the Scottish. Listeners of a Scottish disposition, look away now. And poor Mr Ricketts, who's a bit hapless anyway, he's the purser. Right. Um, he's... In one of these great comic moments, he's demonstrating a swim stroke in the gun room dinner. He knocks wine and then a dish and gravy and meat or whatever into Marshall's lap. And Marshall's Scots by kind of extraction. And we get this great line of comic dialogue from Patrick O'Brien. Marshall says, ah, you've been you're prating like a horse and otter. By the way, I've no idea what an otter might do that would cause it to, to be described as prating, but never mind. You're prating like a horse and otter. You've wrecked my best nankeen trousers. And I love how he phoneticizes this Scottish accent just enough that you can really hear this indignant, um, you know, outburst from Marshall. My best nankeen trousers. <laughs> now, as, as well as... And the Scottish aren't the only people to become the butt of this humour. O'Brien lived for decades amongst the French and with this kind of backhanded mix of uh, love and disdain, he satirises Franglish. I also love how Captain Azima, the captain of the privateer, um, <laughs> he, he gets a little bit of Franglish dialogue. And, and again, we, we talked last time about the, uh, the way that O'Brien rendered Scottish and Irish dialogue. Now we've got sl slightly mistranslated French 
turning up in the mouths of a French person trying to speak English. And Captain Nazema says, I have asked them to carry robes so they can assume the form divine. I'm, I'm adding the accent. Right. And you can kind of really imagine this is a very genteel, courteous act by this uh, privateer saying, I have asked them to wear their dresses again. Uh, we got right. a little bit of the same thing from Christy Pallier back when, when Jack and Stephen were having dinner. You know, how do I look? Are oh, you were looking pimping, which is presumably just a bad <laughs> translation of a perfectly reasonable French word. Right. And again, Patrick O'Brien's having fun with the fact that he knows what goes on in the brains of Francophones when they try and speak English and just how bizarre some of the translations sound when they come out. And by the time we got to the end of Master and Commander, Mike and I were also talking to our favourite Francophone, our well-read good friend Jeremy Raymond and he had some interesting thoughts about character and humour and who gets the best jokes. I think it's always telling too who gets the best jokes and Maturin <laughs> I think definitely gets the best jokes because that's usually a bit of a giveaway about you know yeah. who, who the, the author loves most. Um, that little bit I read before there's a marvellous bit about when you know the effect of authority on on middle-aged men the senior post-captain, here, Admiral Warren, shriveled men, shriveled in essence, not, alas, in belly. You know, that that kind of sort of rather sort of snarky remark. Yes. And there's another wonderful one about the size of the cabin, which was something to do with it. It would, it would fit you very well if you had a wooden leg or something. You know, the, the, it's the, all these kind of comments all get given to Maturin rather than Aubrey. Yeah, and every time Aubrey tries humour, it's a bit, a bit forced and a bit inane and teenagerish, really. And 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 Aubrey doesn't have great jokes. As a matter of fact, his jokes are are little and they're poorly constructed, and he gets such glee out of them that <laughs> that everybody else can't help but laugh, looking at how gleeful Jack is. I think Dylan even makes that observation. You know, he he gets more humor out of the silliest, littlest things than anybody's ever seen in his life. The bon viveur aspect of this, you know, the big dinners that that really features. Where he does go into di- overdrive on the descriptions is often to do with what people are eating, um, right. often in quite a humorous way, I would I, I would add. But I, I always enjoyed the meals. There's a marvellous description when they're, they're all invited to dinner by Dylan and how everybody then kind of couldn't speak. Here, everything he said was right, and presently his spirits began to sink under the burden. Marshall and Purser Rickett sat mum, saying please and thank you, eating with dreadful precision. Young Mowit, um, a fellow guest, was altogether silent, of course. Dylan worked away at the small talk, but Stephen Maturin was sunk deep in reverie. New paragraph. It was the pig that saved this melancholy feast. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. As well as relationships between sailors providing a comic turn, we also read on a book or two, and O'Brien's using great comedy writing to talk about the relationships between men and women, beginning with Stephen Maturin and Diana Villiers. Then we quickly get into this there's this kind of easy bantering conversation between Stephen Maturin and Diana Villiers. And I remember as I read it, thinking, ah, okay, things are going to fall into place. Beautiful, gentle, kind, sympathetic Sophie is going to be the one for blustering hero Jack Aubrey and kind of quirky, whip-smart, independently brainy Diana is going to be the one for independent philosopher-minded Stephen Maturin. And here we have, at I thought it was incredibly funny, uh, an interesting scene between Diana Villers and Stephen Maturin, kind of their first interchange together after having met, I guess, the day before. 
so he's, he's teasing her about being late. And she says, that, that's the one advantage in being a woman. You do know that I'm a woman, don't you, Maturin? <laughs> yeah. And, and he, I think he's allowed to play his kind of, the, the, the banter comes with a little hint of his physician's kind of scientific detachment. And he can say, you know, what, why should the trifling accident of sex um, induce a sentient being, let alone a smart one like you, to waste this beautiful morning? And I can't conceive why. Come, let me help you get up on the horse. And he keeps using this word sex, sex, under his breath over again. And she's horrified because she knows that he means it one way, but that the social bourgeoisie around them in the uh, in the English countryside aren't going to pick it up quite like that. And she says, hush, Matron, don't use words like that around here. It was bad enough yesterday. And he says, what do you mean yesterday? Oh, that's right. I'm, I'm not the first man to say that wit is the unexpected copulation of ideas. You know, far from it. It's a commonplace. And Diana says, yes, but as far as my aunt is concerned, you are the first man who's ever used that expression in public. <laughs> so I think they're, they're enjoying each other's company, right? Stephen and Diana are not the only ones whose relationship gives us comedy value. Of course, we've got Jack and Sophie at home together. And that domestic comedy kind of gets front and center as as we're joining them. Um, I, I loved how in, in the very first page, Jack has walked into the house. Sophie looks at him, sees Jack's beaming face and says it's, you know, she can tell as if it were written on his forehead that he's bought the horse that he coveted. <laughs> and, and we And we move right on from there. One of the things that I really liked about this opening chapter, it's funny, I found myself thinking, well, you know, we've heard a lot about Jack and Stephen talking about Sophie, and we hear a lot about Stephen talking to Sophie and then talking to Jack. We haven't heard very much since they got married of Jack and Sophie talking together. Mike, I really like the the dialogue between the two of them. They, they go to bed, and without betraying too much about the household, I'm going to say it was quite relatable to me. <laughs> that Sophie's right. taking care that those last conversations before bedtime, Jack's really paying attention. So she completely, with with forethought and with intent, flings the candle down on the floor so that he doesn't fall asleep in those last moments so that she can keep Jack awake and make, make to him the argument about going to see in the leopard because maybe it will help Stephen and maybe it's what he needs. But actually, she's she's playing Jack absolutely to a T. Now, we mentioned earlier on that often comedy arises from Stephen and from Jack in particular, wrestling with authority. And O'Brien loves the idea of Jack facing off against a pompous authority figure. We got a great example in The Fortune of War as Jack meets the Admiral. Due from Bombay, Captain York has her. She just touches here. Time to pick up my dispatches. Then she flies home as quick as an arrow. As quick as an arrow, Aubrey. Yes, sir. Flesh is the French word for arrow, Aubrey. Oh, indeed. <laughs> I was not aware. Very good, sir. Capital. I shall repeat that. So, <laughs> so we know that Jack loves his own wit, but he's also a bit cloth-eared for other people's wit. <laughs> Even wit that's relatively simple, like the Admiral's. Well, but I love that the Admiral picked right up on it because as Jack says, I should repeat that the Admiral says, I dare say you will and pass it off as your own too. <laughs> so. And then this gentle needling between the Admiral and Aubrey goes on and uh, the Admiral says, well, of course, I'll have to press all of your men and assign them to cruise here because we're terribly short staffed. Maybe you can have the doctor and maybe a servant. And Jack really goes off on one with the Admiral 
about the immemorial custom of the service, and they have this big stand-up row, which which is always, I think, hinted that it's it's actually quite a friendly row because they know each other. Right. The, the admiral makes a joke about the Bible. I think Jack earlier on had passed off one of his slightly misjudged remarks as being a, a mention of the Bible, and the admiral says, "Oh, you remind me of that other sodomite, right? <laughs> sodomite, sir." <laughs> Oh. oh yes, neither. Oh, Abraham. That's right. The one who was, <laughs> the one who wrangled over Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. <laughs> so in the end, then the admiral caves in, and Jack's able to keep hold of not only Stephen but Babington and his other midshipmen and bond on these. Now, conversational jousting with a British admiral on home turf, risky enough. You would have thought for Jack Aubrey, but we really loved what happened when Jack went in with both feet first in an encounter with an American official. Jack's ashore, he's in Boston, he's convalescing, he's in a madhouse. What could possibly go wrong? And Jack, as I mentioned, is kind of having a great deal of fun playing along with the patients here. He writes to Sophie, he says, we humor one another each playing it being madder than the next. And there, there are these certain unspoken rules. And, and he gets interrupted, interrupted by a visitor. And Mike, this brings us to one of the funniest, genuinely, well, 100% purely comic passages in Patrick O'Brien. Right. This next passage is worthy of P.G. Woodhouse, I think, in terms of the, the, the misunderstanding and the wordplay and the, and the dialogue. It's just hilarious. So, good afternoon, sir, says the first... Uh, interrogator, the first visitor. I am Jaleel Brenton of the Navy Department. Now, the snag here is that Jack knew of a Jaleel Brenton who was a post-captain in the Royal Navy and had been made famous in England by being made a baronet and hence had this curious name. So Jack goes right into believing that Jaleel Brenton is perhaps not this person's real name. Good afternoon to you, gentlemen. I am John Aubrey, grandson to the Pope of Rome. After a slight pause, Mr. Brenton said, I was not aware that Romanists are allowed in your service, sir. Never you believe it, sir. Why, half the border admiralty is made up of Jesuits, even though it don't do to let it be generally known. Pray take a seat. How's your brother Ned? Uh-oh. <laughs> I have no brother Ned, sir, said Mr. Brenton crossly. We are come here to ask you questions about the leopard. Ask on, old boy, said Jack. All I know is she can't change her spots. Ha ha ha. Tis in the Bible, and you can't say fairer than that. This is... <laughs> This is, you know, Jack thinking that he's got another lunatic across the uh, desk from him, or, or a couple of them here. He goes on, Mr. Breton questions him about firing on an American brig, the Alice B. Sawyer, yeah. while he was captain of the Leopard. Jack says, I confess all. I sifted backstays. I slept out of my ship. I kept false musters. I failed to submit my quarterly returns. I allowed stove casts to be thrown overboard, and I blasted Alice B. Sawyer from the water with both my broadsides treble-shotted. I throw myself upon the mercy of this honorable court. <laughs> Excellent stuff. And to finish the first half of this comedy special, we've got another encounter with an admiral this time. Jack's not going to get into trouble all by himself. He has Stephen to lend a hand, and Stephen thinks he knows all about the game of cricket. You've got so 
something to keep them busy, which you are <laughs> an expert on and which I am no hand at. <laughs> Ian, take us away here. Well, we're coming up to the cricket match between the Admiral's Eleven of whoever's stationed on the station versus the crew of the Leopard. Right, the Cumberland and the And this is going to be great because I think we hear that in the crew of the Leopard, the surviving members of the crew of the Leopard, there are some Kent and Hampshire men, those being famous counties for cricket. And I think every English person thrown together with other English people at, at some point is going to try and play sports with the rest of them. And in this far-flung corner of the empire in hot weather, what other game could you play than cricket? Now, Stephen's going to have to play a role in this. And already Stephen has a vague notion that he's going to have to equip himself with a bat. And of course, this is before the era of mail order or everybody having a bat in their kit bag. Stephen's got to go and cut himself and fashion himself a cricket bat, not perhaps having entirely the clearest idea of what constitutes a cricket bat. Right. When Jack first mentioned this upcoming cricket game to Stephen, Stephen's like appalled that Jack doesn't think that he plays. And he, I think in proof of that, brings back his own bat that he's been onshore collecting his specimens and he cuts this down from an upas tree mm. and something I had never heard of before. Yeah, but that. in doing a little research, apparently it plays very heavily in the literature of the time. Byron, who we've talked about, Bronte. Um, so many people make allusions to this deadly upas tree. Supposedly the, the sap was poison. It plays this allegorical role in, in so much literature. But Stephen has cut his bat and brought it back here. And having gotten Jack's mind off of Kimber as they move on to the cricket game, Stephen is wielding his, his, his upas bat with him. I wonder if we're meant to read in a, a connection between the idea of the upas tree being poisonous and Stephen having poisoned the well of intelligence for the Americans and the French. Ah, well done. <laughs> now, now we come across Patrick O'Brien's description of this game of cricket. By the way, this is a great moment for... If you're going to read any English author that chooses to read about cricket, they will probably have paid some close attention and be expressing a bit of love for the game. There's a really funny cricket match described between two private schools in um, Stephen Fry's novel, The Liarbird, which displays the, just the same love and also the same kind of P.G. Woodhouse level of humour. <laughs> I've actually got some audio that might help explain how cricket looks to an American. This is taken from sports night and one of the actors speaking you'll hear is josh malina who himself is a podcast host and a star of the west wing but they've discovered something about cricket that this american tv sports panel are trying to make sense of a very big sports story is happening jeremy if a very big sports story was happening we'd know it we do know it we just don't understand it you don't understand it you understand cricket i know a little something what i know they drink tea Dan, do you know anything about cricket? Ah, oh, cricket. The game of the civilized sportsman. Do you know anything about it? No. You like it, though? What's not to like? They wear white, they drink tea. Guy in New Zealand got all ten wickets. Wickets in New Delhi. This is an international news story. There are countries other than ours. Yes, there is, for instance, Belgium, to name but one. What's up? Please don't ask. Don't ask about what? Jeremy was on the phone with a man who was in Trinidad at the time who told him of a cricket player in New Delhi who got all 10 wickets in one inning. This is from the World Observer. It says if you compared it to baseball, it'd be like pitching three perfect games on three consecutive days. Really? Wait, 
No, not exactly. Why not exactly? It says the final four batters scored 16 runs. Well, that doesn't sound good. It certainly doesn't sound perfect. Right. In baseball, if the final four batters scored 16 runs, it'd be hard to consider that perfect. Jeremy, I don't know how comfortable I am reporting a story I don't understand. No, it's not that hard to understand. There's a bowler, see, and there's a batsman. What's a bowler? I don't know. What's a batsman? I don't know. Well, keep it up. Here's something. Raj Rajhan edged a humble snorter to the slips where Suarav Ganguly dived to his right to pick up a low snatch. The humble snorter went straight to the slips and obviously the snatch was lower than it ordinarily is. Yes. I'm getting to the bottom of this. Keep me posted. So there you have it. The cast and crew of Sports Night trying to make sense of a career-breaking 10-inning haul for a bowler in a cricket match somewhere on the far side of the world. Now, first of all, we're going to encounter just what kind of a secret weapon the Admirals team have got against the batsmen of the Leopards. The Leopards are going into bat first, and the Admiral is a spin bowler. Babington is caught bang to rights by this really cunningly delivered spin delivery, what he calls a twister. So Babington's wickets tumble. First ball, that's called getting a duck. He's made a duck. He says here, Babington returned downcast. You want to watch the Admiral, he said to Captain Moore of the Leopards Marines. It was the most devilish twister you ever saw. And then we get this really great moment of Captain Moore. It says here, he walked off with a wealth of contradictory advice pursuing him. You want to dart forwards and catch them full toss. Oh, I'm going to play safe for the first hour and wear him out, says Moore. You you need to knock him off his length. That's the only way to play them lobs. So everybody on the crew of the Leopards got some advice for poor old (laughs) Captain Moore. Stephen can't quite get the same advantage of observation. He has managed to cut himself this bat. Stephen is thinking of the closest analogy he can get, which is hurling. So he's summoned. He's summoned by this uh, midshipman, Forshaw. Oh, come on, sir, says midshipman Forshaw. The admiral skipping up and down. We're in a dreadful way. Mind the branch, sir. Nine wickets down. That means their side is bowled out all but for one remaining batter. <laughs> and then we get Stephen's one moment of cricketing glory, which is just high situation comedy. Patrick O'Brien says he dribbled the ball towards the astonished cover point, which is a fielder who's about halfway to the boundary. He dribbled the ball towards the astonished cover point and running still, he scooped the ball into the hollow of his hurley, raced on with twinkling steps to mid-off, about another 20 degrees around the pitch and a bit closer to the wicket this time. There checked his run amidst the stark, silent amazement, flicked the ball into his hand, tossed it high and with a screech, drove it straight at Jack's wicket, shattering the near stump and sending its upper half in a long, graceful trajectory that reached the ground just as the first of Laflesh's guns saluting the flag echoed across the field. So that wraps it up for the first half. In the second half still to come, we've got farting horses, we've got the Odabashi, and we've got some great chat with our good friend Ava Sandor, author and Patrick O'Brien fan, to talk some more about the humour where it comes from and where it takes us. Welcome back. 
you're with the Lubbers Hole. We're talking about comedy. Please let us know how you're enjoying this temporary foray into the archives of the Lubbers Hole. Please join us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Lubbers Hole. Tweet us at Hole Lubbers. Tell us what your favourite funny moments are and what you might like to hear in our next special. You know, there are some pieces of the canon that you can see coming a long way off when you're rereading and you're looking forward to them and you're thinking, I can't wait for this moment. For me and Mike, one such moment was right in the middle of Treason's Harbour. Jack and the crew are travelling across the Arabian desert and they meet a strange character, a Turkish janissary, the Odabashi. Everybody's getting ready to depart. Murad Bey orders the Odabashi, the corporal, to pick five men to escort Captain Aubrey and his men on their journey to Suez. He tells him to go with the dragoman with Harabedian to meet the English officer of the same rank. And Mike, this is one of my favourite passages in the canon. This is, this is just great. Right. Harabedian introduces the Odabashi to Mr. Hull of the Bosun, to Mr. Borel the Gunner, and Mr. Lamb the Carpenter, who are drinking tea in the warrant officer's tent. Harabedium leaves him to mess with them. And as usual, like any British person speaking to foreigners, the bosun invites him in a loud voice to have a cup of tea. Tea! Cha! And we get no response from the Odabashi. The bosun comments that he looks more like an ape than a human. And then suddenly we get the Odabashi springs to life. Ape! cried the Odabashi, stung out of his shyness. You can put that where the monkey put the nuts. You ain't no oil painting yourself neither. Stunned silence. The bosun asks if the Odabashi speaks English. Not a f***ing word, says the Odabashi. No offence intended, mate, says the bosun. And they shake hands. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that. I, I love how O'Brien does that. I agree with that. And I can't help but thinking how much more fun Game of Thrones would have been if one of Grey Worm's Unsullied had spoken Cockney off duty. <laughs> Good call. That's going to be worth somebody making a quick internet overdub. To help us dig even more deeply into the treasure trove of Patrick O'Brien humour, we spent some time chatting to our old friend, author and O'Brien fan, Ava Sandor. I'm really happy to have Eva along for the, for the show today. Eva, remind the guests who you are and uh, tell us how you're interested in the O'Brien books. Ah, yes. Um, I am a huge, huge fan of Patrick O'Brien, as I'm sure we are all. Um, but I yeah. think I kind of got a little bit notorious because in the Facebook group, the Aubrey Matter and Appreciation Society, I would sometimes write my own humorous essays where I'd kind of do takeoffs on O'Brien and people really enjoyed the tone of voice. They found it to be very much like the original. So um, that's kind of got me my little bit of notoriety there. And I also wrote a novel where I, I actually decided I was going to go ahead and just write an entire book where I could play with language in the same way. Fantastic. That was fool's proof, right? How's that been? Yes, it's been really, really good. As a matter of fact, there is a sequel coming in October as Ooh. well. Yeah, it's awesome. coming. And um, it's been doing it's been doing pretty well. This is my first novel, so it turns out marketing a novel is exactly as much work and more as writing it. So I'm learning as I go, but it's slowly and steadily getting more reviews and getting more attention. It's been very, very positive all the way through. So I really enjoyed oh, it. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're talking today about humor and mm -hmm. 
we're kind of looking back over the first 10 books and thinking about which which parts do we really like and what can we see about the way O'Brien makes us all laugh. So one of the features of Patrick O'Brien's humor that we all really, really enjoy is his wonderful choice and flow of words. Like, for instance, when, yes, when he describes Mrs. Williams, when he describes her as a deeply stupid, griping, illiberal, avid, tenacious, pinch fist lick penny, a sordid lick penny, and a shrew. But there are so many places in the canon where he does that trick of language, especially when Stephen's talking, right? And he layers on these words. And often the, the sailors talk to each other in this way where they call each other things like wall-eyed, slab-sided, Dutch-built buggers, or a fly-by-night piss-in-the-corner privateersman, things like that. That is one of his styles of humor. And of course, he does have the style of humor, which is just that good old earthy, plain old jokes. Like, for instance, when yes, when we first meet Babington and his uh, one of his mates in the midshipman's berth uh, you know, says, please excuse the smell. And of course, when Babington and Diana are in the carriage, that wonderful moment with the horse, the beast. I want to just talk about how Diana seems equipped to put men down as well. She's got this great skill, sometimes in a positive and funny way, but also sometimes in quite a damaging way to take command of a situation. And by the way, this gives me the chance to mention what is, I think, a world-class fart joke. Congratulations to Patrick O'Brien. Yeah, Diana's being taken back from her cousin's house to go to the ball at Melbury Lodge. And... uh, the midshipman Babington is a bit anxious and his driving's a bit wild, so she calms him down and to kind of put him in his place, um, she takes advantage of the moment when this bean-fed horse emits a thunderous long, long fart. And Babington says, I beg your pardon, into the silence. And she says, oh, that's all right. I thought it was the horse. <laughs> Which is like, you know, that's like a... That's a Christmas dad joke, right? But it's kind of played by Patrick <laughs> O'Brien into the, you know, into the mouth of uh, of Diana, and she's using it absolutely as a put down to say, "Don't worry, young man, I've got this. You sit down over there and worry about the fart." Yes, of course we've got a fart joke, right? But I did also notice that there is a much more intellectual form of humor in O'Brien, and it, there's a very famous quote about humor and about the analysis of humor, which I think many of us have have heard. It's been attributed to a lot of people, including Mark Twain, but they think from what I've read that the original quote comes from E.B. White, and it is that humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing tends to die in the process, and the innards are dispiriting to any but a purely scientific mind. So that's the (laughs) whole thing, and it's true. However, I think- It is a great line, and it's worth the dissecting. I think in this case, we've just got to dissect some of this humor because the kind of humor that I've gathered here um, for our chat is ones where it's intellectual humor, it's scholarship humor, in that the deeper you look, the more layers of humor you find. And you often find that, yeah, you often find that uh, O'Brien is telling us something which isn't humor at all, but actually is true. So... I found a bunch of them. Do you mind if I just kind of run them down and you can edit these together as you wish? Yeah, let's try to make the most of our time. Um, One of them, the one that I think a lot of people know and love is, for instance, the Fuggers. The Fuggers, (laughs) the famous German banking family, which absolutely is true. There really was a banking family named Fugger. 
And they put together the Fuggerei, which is in Augsburg, and it's one of the world's first social housing projects. The Fuggers made it so that you could live there for a rent of one shilling per year, as long as you said three prayers per day, right? But other jokes of this kind that, for instance, we might think that the name Caca Fuego, which, you know, shit fire, you know, that might seem to be a joke. But according to Wikipedia, and I'm sure it's never, never wrong, right? They say that there really were uh, plenty of little Spanish ships, smaller ships named Caca Fuego. It seemed to be a kind of a popular name. So that's probably true, too. Yes. And we have um, moments when things like uh, Jack makes a mistake, you know, when he when he says putan instead of patois. But some of the more intellectual jokes that I've found are, for instance, in Master and Commander, Patrick O'Brien leads right off with a really good one when um, Stephen is discussing his position as a naval surgeon at a party with uh, a lady who perhaps, you know, is not impressed by a naval surgeon. And he says, um, well, you know, what made you decide to become a naval surgeon? And he's saying, well, all that clisters or clysters, I think it's pronounced clisters, is not gold. Yes. And and a fervent desire to bleed for my country. Right. And now I know you're laughing for a reason, because if you look this up, clisters, uh, we would say all that glitters is not gold. But we often also hear it written in the older terminology, all that glisters is not gold. Well, all that clisters is not gold. A clister is an enema. Yes, indeed. So that is. And it's also a joke to say that he has a desire to bleed for his country because they don't say who's doing the bleeding. It's not necessarily no. him. As a surgeon, he's going to bleed others for his country, right? Um, so with the animal, that's a good combination of the intellectual humor thread and the potty humor thread. Exactly, right? right exactly. The, 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 the rear passage, as it were. <laughs> yes, And other things that absolutely are true. So in Post Captain, I'm just going to walk through one book at a time, if you don't mind, book number two. Um, Talking about poetry, uh, one of the characters who's, I think, Mr. Londes is the pronunciation, the teapot, the Diana's mad guy. Yeah. In Dover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Diana's cousin who wears the tea cozy on his head there. Um, He asks, he starts kind of to say a few things that sound smutty or dirty, and we start to think that maybe he's not just an innocent lunatic. He might have a little bit of a naughty side to him. And he asks, yes, he does. He asks Stephen whether he wants to listen to some of his poetry, including his Priapian odes. And for those of us who know about Priapus, the the Greek mythological character with the um, large... uh, I don't know, the little blue pill thing going on, right? (laughs) We start thinking that's pretty funny, a Priapian ode, and he's making a dirty joke, but there really were Priapian odes. It was a meter of poetry, so he he might be trying to make a dirty joke, but it's true, there is such poetry. When Jack, when he's describing why he behaves different than Stephen, he says, autre pays, autre mers. And that's what it should be, saying that other places, other mores, right? Yeah. But instead he says, autre pays, autre merde. (laughs) And that's a little bit altogether different. (laughs) Altogether different. But when you think about it, that's actually a really appropriate way to say that they get into all kinds of trouble. It's other places and just other ish they get into. Um, Yeah. I'm going to skip ahead to what I think is the most amazing example. Yes. 
because I found one that had so many layers, it just really surprised me a lot. Um, and it was that um, Jack makes a wisecrack in the far side of the world to Stephen. Uh -huh. And he, uh, he makes a wisecrack and Stephen says, well, you're not unlike Shakespeare, are you? And Jack says, you know, that's already a, a kind of funny, but Jack says, well, you know, people often say so when they read my letters and dispatches. And we can't tell if he's trying to play along with Stephen or if he really thinks that. Stephen yeah. makes a reply to him. Stephen says, well, all you have to do is add a few Shakespearean touches to whatever it is you say. Things like marry or come up or put a pox on it. And then it would be, and, and Stephen finishes, pure gammon or bacon, or what you will. And that's three <laughs> densely layered jokes right there. Yeah. Um, so for instance, gammon is unsmoked bacon, right? Yep. It's a special kind of pork, which we don't really eat here in the U.S. as gammon. We would just know it as, you know, uncured bacon. But yep. that's one. And then bacon, who he is, of course, referring to bacon, who is sometimes thought to have written Shakespeare's works, right? Indeed. Or what you will. Yes. And then he throws in what you will, which is the alternative title of Twelfth Night. So yep. Patrick O'Brien fires off a huge flurry of these intellectual jokes just in that tight little exchange, just that little back and forth with Stephen and Jack. So it's pretty amazing. Oh. Yeah. It um, is amazing. And he must have had a lot of fun layering the jokes and putting them together. It's a little combination of the author showing off and the author knowing that he's going to make more of his readers smile the more they stop and think about it. Exactly. I think that we can think of these as intellectual Easter eggs. These are a reward, yeah. right, for someone who wants to bother looking it up. And I think I've heard it said that it was, I think it was the comedian Norm MacDonald, if I mm -hmm. am correct, who said that he likes to throw in a joke that there's only going to be one or two people in the audience who get, because yeah. that's going to make them feel really, really proud of themselves that they, that they understood it. And I think Patrick O'Brien absolutely is doing that. Um, yeah. I tried to throw in a few of those myself, but I don't think I ever succeeded as well as he did. He's got such amazing, amazing ones. So I wanted to talk about some of the jokes that involve horses. And for me, one of the first and best was right back in post-Captain Jack's protesting horse. You know, Captain Aubrey on this huge hunter horse and and Stephen kind of almost, you know, in a lounge chair of, of a donkey there, um, you know, being about his natural history <laughs> business. And from there, we've just got all kinds of horse examples as well as this horse's stream of consciousness scene. Oh, yeah. We go inside the, the mind of the horse. That was funny. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the horse is saying, you know, thinking about Jack up there, too heavy, sits too far forward. And when we go over a fence, I've, I've carried him far enough for one day. I shall have him off presently. See if I don't. Oh, a mare. I smell a mare. A mare. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, we mentioned last time about uh, Patrick O'Brien's penchant for bringing minor characters into play and, and getting a little depth here. Now, you know, Diana sitting her horse with the unconscious grace of a midshipman at the tiller at a lively sea. I love how Patrick O'Brien was able to put us into the mind of an animal without really making it too jarring. Sometimes people... Uh, find that when you do head hopping, as they call yeah. it in writing, when you enter too many characters' minds, it confuses the reader. Yep. 
but it never does with Patrick O'Brien. And even especially when he goes so far as to hop us into the head of an animal, it still has much the same mood as the rest of his writing. And it's not disturbing at all. It's just, just great. It, it expands our understanding of this world, even beyond the humans. Yeah, it does. Great. And I like how the, the animals are always, they always begin by expressing an animal's interest or desire. Like I'm uncomfortable. I want to find a mate. I want food. They've always got that coming first. And then they look, they're looking mm-hmm. at the humans through that lens. So they're not having to be, you know, a ther- therapist or psychoanalyst. They start out wanting food and shelter and sex. Mm-hmm. They're just animals. And they just, even if they're just lazy, like I love how he explains them in human terms. Like when the, the parrot and the cat are on board, there's the ship's cat sitting with his arms akimbo. I love the use of the word arms. And then the parrot that's so drunk that it's lying on deck and it utters a weak yo-ho-ho. Then the cat is its particular friend. Yes. <laughs> it's just, it's so perfect. The cat's particular friend, a drunken parrot. I had to include, in my own book, I included a parrot that was so drunk it fell off a yard arm, just as a little Easter egg for the O'Brien ah, fans. Because, yeah. <laughs> There's one animal that we absolutely can't go much further without mentioning, and that's got to be the sloth. Or is it the sloth? Jack keeps a little bit suspicious that Stephen just wants to get ashore. He doesn't want to get entangled up. They've actually drifted now well towards Brazil, and they're going to dock at Rio anyway. That's under their orders. But Stephen shows a number of the patients to Jack and the effects of the scurvy. Jack becomes quite convinced and uh, so convinced that he even returns and tells Killick he's going to skip uh, the next meal after everything he's seen and that they're going to stop, which now sets up another opportunity for, um, for Stephen to go ashore for some more animals. But Jack makes him swear, you know, to give his oath that he will not bring back any vampires. And God bless him. Stephen's good for his word. Not a vampire <laughs> was there to be found. Right. And from, from a distance, Jack sees Stephen coming back in the boat with some grain, great hairy thing wrapped around Stephen. I think what, what the, what the heck kind of a vampire is this? And Jack is so mad watching him, you know, um, you know, he, he thinks it's some loathsome, great vampire, the most poisonous kind, no doubt. And, and then he thinks, you know, surely Stephen is going to, you know, he's, he's given a sacred oath that, you know, he comes up to the side, he'll be all upset, but he's not, he's just as happy as he can be. And and Jack confronts him, and to which Stephen educates Jack a little bit to say, Jack, this is not a vampire. This is a sloth. And, you know, he's just a wonderful one, yeah? You know, when the Jack tells him- discriminating sloth, you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Affectionate and discriminating. It's just beautiful. And apparently he's affectionate and discriminating, loving the world for everybody except for Jack, which is quite the <laughs> moment there, you know, that uh, it says the sloth turned its round head, fixed its eyes on Jack, uttered a, a despairing wail and buried its face again in Stephen's shoulder, tightening its grip to the strangling point. <laughs> <laughs> the sloth is clearly attached to, to, to many things and most especially Stephen clearly can't get along with Jack. Do you want to tell the story of how the sloth finally makes it into friendship with Jack? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, Jack is trying everything uh, to get on the good side of the sloth here. 
he gives him things to eat. He talks to him. He even attempts Portuguese, but nothing answers. And then one day, Jack feeds him with a little bit of cake dipped in grog. And it says they became became good friends with a regular meeting whenever grog is served out. And, you know, the sloth becomes really a, a bit of a lush here. Uh, and so Jack and the sloth are, are drinking together, essentially. And at one point, you know, Stephen walks in. Uh, the sloth is, is curled up on Jack's knees, breathing heavily. The sloth has a bowl for his grog. Jack has a bottle. Stephen sees both of them empty and, you know, is examining his sloth and, and, he finally realizes what's happening because he tries to hang the sloth up on his on his rope to sleep, and he kind of hangs on with a foot in one hand and the other foot in hand. You know, are kind of falling off. Our, our you know, we we can remember from our <laughs> the days of our youth where we might have been in this kind of position. And Stephen is just shocked. And one of my favorite lines in the canon, which you have to deliver. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen looks around, sees the decanter smells the sloth and cries, Jack, you have debauched my sloth. (laughs) I just love this line. It's perfect. Uh, What other, we've got tons of other animals. We have, in fact, another cat that is the bosun's cat in Far Side of the World. It's a little bit of wordplay, right? When um, they ask Stephen, what should they name this cat? And Stephen says, well, the only possible name for a bosun's cat is Scourge. (laughs) And Jack agrees immediately. He throws himself right into that. He's like, Scourge, that's the perfect name for the cat. So, you know, whether other people agree or not, that is true. And and Stephen's straight there. I think lots of these wordplays are meant to be Jack's thing. And naval banter is meant to be Jack's thing. But actually, Stephen could get on the inside of the naval banter really quickly as well. And he's right there with the wordplays when he thinks he can sneak sneak one in. He does do that. And and he does make a couple of his own uh, jokes just a little bit. Like every now and then he is able to to do it. Um, like he makes some jokes to Mr. Graham finally. Yeah. Right. So Mr. Graham may be the only person who is less nautical than uh, Stephen <laughs> is. And yet he's able to kind of get his own jokes in. Like when he tells Mr. Graham that they trice puddings athwart the starboard gumbrels when sailing by and large. Although that does come back to bite him a little bit later on because Mr. Graham remembers exactly that he said that and he brings it out at dinner. It bites Stephen in the backside, really, because he actually upsets Graham (laughs) by kind of overplaying his hand a little bit. That's right. And then... And people know that he did that, which seems so unlike him. He doesn't want to be known as someone that pulled a joke on another character. Oh, and yet he, he does say things like when they have the poetry contest and they're talking about collectors of books. And Graham says, I'm told that a certain collector paid 500 pounds for the first part of Lord Byron's Child yes. Herald. And then Stephen says, oh, I wonder how much the whole adult <laughs> Herald would have fetched. And, and Graham doesn't get it. Graham says, no, child means, a, you know, a, a nobleman's son. He's, he's just the whoosh, you know, the joke goes right over yeah, his head. And, and, and we laugh because we're all, we all know somebody who has a complete sense of humor failure and like all of the banter goes back. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh. Exactly. Um, I've got one that, that doesn't really fall into either one of these categories, but it's just Patrick O'Brien. Just I think he couldn't resist this. In the Ionian mission, there's a scene where a little baby George is, is has to use the restroom, right? And one of the sailors holds him out over the side of the ship so that he can you know, use it as a head. You know, he's just a little kid. He can hold him out at arm's length. And then he calls for a handful of toe to no doubt wipe the child, right? But then the very, very next paragraph, immediately after this exchange, Patrick O'Brien starts it with, on the poop itself. (laughs) (laughs) He needs the poop back. But I just don't think he could resist doing that. It was just so ridiculous. So that was for us, the readers. And he's hoping that we spot it, but, you know. Yes, we did, indeed. Oh, gosh. So just going back to the idea of humour that's got layers of truth and scholarship behind it, we also had a great time talking about the time in the Ionian mission when Jack came toe-to-toe with Babington on the subject of lesbians. Jack sees that the Dryad appears to have now. Women on board her decks? What, what's going on there, Mike? Yeah, it's it's so wild. He's looking over and he can't believe it. He's actually like craning to see it. There are more women than men on the decks. And so he sends a signal out. And, and this is this is who in command? Oh, this is Babington. You know, we know Babington, Babington's reputation. And this is exactly, although infinitely more, what Stephen was worried about, that he'd get distracted by women. And Jack is beside himself. So he wants to send Rowan off with the prize. But first, he wants to make sure that the, the transports are, are waiting for him so he can let the Admiral know. But as Babington comes on board, he checks to, to make sure the transports are OK. And then he sends Rowan off with the prize to report to the commander in chief. And he says, you need not mention the fact that you saw one of the squadron crammed with women from head to stern. You need not report this open and may I say shameless violation of the Articles of War for that disagreeable task falls to your superiors, nor need you make any observations about floating brothels or the relaxation of discipline in the warmer eastern waters, for these observations will naturally occur to the commander-in-chief without your help. Now, pray, go aboard our prize and proceed to Malta without the loss of a minute. Not all of us can spare the time to dally with the sex. (laughs) (laughs) That's a brilliant, that's a a, a 10 out of 10 paragraph from Jack Aubrey. Oh, my God. Jack notices that Babington is trying to protest and he cuts right in. He says, you will not deny that they are women, surely. I can tell the difference between Adam and Eve as quick as the next man, even if you cannot, just as I can tell the difference between an active, zealous officer and a lubber that lies in port indulging his whims. It is of no use trying to impose on me. And Babington interrupts, no, sir, but these are all respectable women. Then why, says Jack, why are they leering over the side like that, making gestures? It is only their way, sir. They are all lesbians. And Jack cuts in. No doubt they are all parsons' daughters, your cousins in the third degree, like that wench in Ceylon. And lesbians, interrupts Babington, lesbians always join their hands like that to show respect. You are become an authority on the motions of Greek women, it appears. Oh, sir, cried Babington, his voice growing shriller still. I know you do not like women aboard. I believe I have had occasion to mention it to you some 50 or 60 times in the last 10 years. If you will allow me to explain, says Babington. So they get into the cabin, and and I love this. Babington says that he is blameless in thought, word, and deed, and then corrects himself, says, well, perhaps not in thought. 
<laughs> and that, that's, that's about as honest as you can be here. And then Babington concludes saying, and here I am, sir, quite happy to be publicly reproached, abused, and amazingly vilified, so long as I am conscious of having done my duty. And Jack's a bit stunned. Well, damn, William, I, I am sorry. I'm, I'm very sorry indeed. I, I am. But injustice is a rule of the service, as you know very well. And since you have to have a good deal of undeserved abuse, you might just as well have it from your friends. <laughs> And that is, I think, another excellent example of, of writing something that is absolutely true. Of course, Babington wants to say he has nothing to do with these women because they're all lesbians and everyone's like, yeah, right. But he really means it. They really were from the island of Lesbos. He picked them up when they were uh, guests at a wedding and he really means it literally. So I think that's yet another piece of, of good uh, Patrick O'Brien telling us the truth type of humor. Yeah, it's and it's very, very clever. So many of his other things, his quotes and his allusions and his bits of naval history all have some scholarship and some research behind them. And it turns out that his jokes do too. Yes, and so that gives it double goodness. And it's kind of like when you when you watch a movie like Spinal Tap, for instance, or when you listen to, to parody music like Weird yeah. Al, for instance, yeah. if they weren't good musicians, it wouldn't be so funny if it weren't beautifully yeah. done. And it's the same with this. If it weren't true, it wouldn't be so funny. It would be somewhat funny, but then he'd be having a joke on yeah. us, really, where with this, he's having a joke with us. He's sharing the humor of reality with us, and that's even more sweet. Eva, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. It's been a big pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Okay. All the best with the new book launch as well. So the, the current book is Fool's Proof, and mm -hmm. tell us again the name of the new book when it comes out. Powers Play. Powers Play. Okay, well, yes. best of luck. Best of luck thank with both of those. Thanks once again to Eva Sandor for joining us. It was great to have her perspectives as we had fun with all of the humour of the Patrick O'Brien canon, at least the first half of it. We have been crossing the line. We're halfway through the canon. We have one or two more of these specials to go. So like I said before, get on the Facebook and on the Twitter if you've got anything that you'd like to hear. And we hope, like us, you're looking forward to us getting both of us back behind the microphone and getting on with the reverse of the medal. As for a bit more Patrick O'Brien, I should like that of all things. soon, Mike.